quite often asked, you know, if, if salvation is universal, what was the point of, of yeah. the cross? Yeah. Um, but, but wouldn't it be the same? I mean, would you ask exactly the same question? No matter how many are saved, whether it's just one person or everybody, uh, the cross would still be the way by which that salvation was uh, was accomplished. Um, universalists still thought that there could not be salvation except through the overthrow of death and sin, through the conquest and restoration of, of the fallen uh, cosmos. Uh, the restoration of all things to God, so that God should be all in all. It's the same story. It just in in the universalist version, God really wins. He doesn't just have a partial victory, and it's not just a partial uh, partial victory in a in a uh, in a story that otherwise is quite tragic. A mighty family. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and this is the start of our traditional October Halloween-themed episodes. And so this year, super excited. It kind of fell together quite nicely. Uh, Didn't mean for it to go this way, but this is an episode I actually recorded a while ago. Um, Actually, it was the first episode I believe I recorded after I got, I recovered from COVID. So I'm a little, I probably sound a little hoarse um, in, in this episode, but so forgive me there, but uh, it's not about listening to my voice, just about listening to the great David Bentley Hart. So uh, if you've never heard of Dr. Hart before, uh, he came out a couple years ago, I think now, with his own translation of the New Testament. Uh, but he's got a fantastic book out uh, that came out about a year ago called All That Shall Be Saved. And it's the whole premise of the book is that his research has led him to conclude that there are far more references in the in the Bible to uh, what you would call universal salvation versus uh, this idea that there's this uh, eternal place of torment. Uh, and so he uh, presents his case. He is very convinced that this is accurate. Um, it, it's a really well-researched, um, well-written book. Um, very, very interesting. I highly recommend it. Um, we've abro- approached this subject before. Um, and I'll be honest, like a lot of people like myself uh, just don't know where to fall uh, on that spectrum. Um, you know, like if there isn't a fiery, uh, pit of eternal torment, then kind of what is there? Like, does hell actually exist? And if it does, uh, what might it look like? And, uh, what, what version of, of hell kind of falls theologically along the lines of this belief in an all loving, all forgiving God of grace, um, and peace and, and love. So, uh, it's it's a fun topic every time we do it. Um, if you if you find this interesting, we did do uh, some similar interviews. Uh, gosh, three years ago maybe. You might have to dig back a, a little ways, but if you dig back into the month of October, we've got, done some interesting uh, interviews previously. Uh, we did an interview um, with uh, Dr. Gregory Boyd uh, on the idea of. Um, uh, Annihilationism, which is another alternative theory uh, of hell. We did a really fun interview with Dr. Sharon Putt uh, slash, uh, I think or, I think the book was published under Dr. Sharon Baker. But uh, if you look up Dr. Sharon Putt, she has a book uh, called Raising Hell uh, that uh, kind of covers the different theories. Uh, so we had a fun conversation with her. We also did some fun kind of Halloween-esque episodes. We interviewed um, one of the foremost exorcists from the Catholic Church um, who... Uh, they did a movie about called The Right, starring Anthony Hopkins, um, you know, a couple of years ago. And then we also interviewed Dr. Eben Alexander, who is a, a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon who um, had a rare form of meningitis that caused him to go into a seven-day coma, if I remember correctly, but uh, claims to have had a near-death experience. And so, again, like two topics, three topics, I guess, technically, that uh, don't know where I stand on personally, but... Um, it, it, I think it's fascinating uh, stuff and, and kind of topical for the month, but interesting stuff nonetheless um, and, and creates good conversation. So if you want to go back, if you like this kind of Halloween theme type stuff, um, we do have some other episodes in years past that you should go check out. Uh, but 
Otherwise, this episode, super fun conversation. I was really excited to have him on. He's a brilliant guy. Um, also, got to pitch the, the music this week. It's a band called Dead Horses. It's a duo uh, who just produce beautiful music, and I was super, uh, super stoked to have them uh, provide music for this episode. So if you like their music, go and support them. Uh, check them out. We'll have the, the links in the show notes. Uh, go support them. Obviously, as I've uh, been pitching <laughs> for months now, unfortunately, with the pandemic uh, and, and all tours and things kind of on hold, that is oftentimes a large part of a band's revenue. And so um, they really count on that as income. And so um, the ways that you can support the bands now is a lot of them have um, ways in which you can do that through their, their websites and obviously supporting their music. And so if you like what you hear, go follow them on social media, check out their website, uh, go follow them, uh, go support them uh, and, and their music and their work. And we appreciate that. And of course, we'll update our Spotify playlist. If you search on Spotify for The Deconstructionist, not only will you find uh, our podcast streaming through there, but you'll also find our ever-updated um, Spotify playlist. So go check that out. Likewise, uh, you can go to www.thedeconstructionist.com and you can find all of our episodes that can be streamed directly through the website as well as our blog links to our social media, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to follow us and support us on Patreon, we do have a Patreon um, and uh, we've got some fun different packages on there, including a book of the month club where we ship you out a book every single month. Uh, likewise, uh, we have started doing, we started working with uh, a company that we're really excited about to help uh, ensure that all of our episodes are available for streaming through the website. Um, we kind of lost that ability with our prior platform, uh, but this one is is providing us with the ability to do that again and also um, uh, do some cross promotion with some other uh, podcasts that we really enjoy, uh, that we re- really respect. And so kind of uh, working in collaboration with some of those podcasts, as well as uh, partnering with some some businesses that want to sponsor us. And so um, and, and really um, providing you guys with a discount on products that we think are really cool. So, um, so yeah. So if you like that, go check it out. Otherwise, let's get to it. I've talked more than enough, and I'm not going to be. Able, I'm sorry, Bob. I'm not going to be able to say freaking in the middle of this one. It's another three name person. So, <laughs> without further ado, though, I give you David Bentley Hart. Well, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm very, very excited uh, to have uh, Dr. David Bentley Hart on today. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is this is a topic that that we find very interesting on, on the podcast. We've done a couple episodes on on the topic and and kind of addressed a couple different viewpoints: uh, universalism, annihilationism, that sort of thing. Um, knowing that you just, uh, put a book out, well, not just, but, uh, within recent, the, the last few years put out, uh, your own interpretation, your own translation rather of the new Testament. Was that something that while you were doing that work inspired you to, uh, approach this topic or what really inspired you to, to write a book on this? Uh, no, actually though, I mean, it, it helped that I was, uh, doing the two things concurrently. That is that I was finishing up a translation uh, the translation project, however, was, uh, had been interrupted by a very serious illness that had uh, put me out of commission for a few years, and it briefly uh, uh, threatened to do worse than that. And that might have been the more proximate motive <laughs> uh, uh, for this book. Um, but it did help. I mean, it did help to return to New Testament texts in the original language and be reminded uh, that are the translations that we're accustomed to come freighted with so much uh, theological history, uh, and, and, and that we're reading the text uh, through translations that were formed as much by what people assumed the text to be saying rather than what it really was saying, uh, that it, it clarified a great number of things for me. Um, it didn't make me a universalist. It's always been my leaning, uh, but it did it, it, it sort of fortify me in my prejudices, uh, if that's the right word. 
Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting because um, I, I know we, we kind of get labeled, at least uh, on, on the podcast, as, as progressive Christians for uh, lack of a better term, I guess. But one of the things that we continually get accused of uh, is, is being uh, flippant with the text or not taking Scripture seriously when we argue that you know we're, we're taking it more seriously and trying to look at what the original uh, Greek and Hebrew was saying. And, and so you mentioned at the beginning of your book here, uh, that uh, one one of the things that's, that I found very interesting, rather, is that in the first uh, four to five centuries, uh, Christianity was, you know, spreading. Uh, you mentioned that this was not the current view, rather, was not the prevalent view. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, I mean, it's just uh, we have pretty good evidence that, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know, uh, exactly what the earliest generation really believed about the language it used, uh, because when you take a great deal of the language that we're used to seeing translated as, say, hell, uh, it when you can, uh, and put it in the context of Hellenistic or uh, early pre-Mishnaic or Talmudic Judaism or look at rabbinic tradition, we find that all of these words have a lot more ambiguities to them. We also know, uh, both from the theological texts of certain great church fathers and from some reports, that there seem to have been quite a lot of universalists about in the early centuries, uh, probably mostly, uh, most numerously in the eastern part of the empire. And that uh, it was not the case that, that everyone read uh, the, the words uh, as we now do. Um, it, and quite often, when you talk about a, a figure that most people have heard of, even if only vaguely, origin, or a figure who was who's much more considered in the Orthodox Christian mainstream, uh, at least by uh, historical consensus, if nothing else, Gregory of Nyssa, or other figures at the time who were universalists. It's not the case that they're struggling to make sense of intractable biblical materials that don't support their views. Quite the opposite. They're working with quite a, you know, quite a settled sense, quite a lot of confidence that all they're doing is uh, unfolding the actual implications of the words that are really there. So uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't imagine that in the early centuries this was an eccentric view. I think a great deal of expectations regarding the end of time uh, was a lot more unformed and various and imprecise in, in the earliest days of the church. So, so you mentioned to to that point. You mentioned in the early parts of the book uh, that Christianity had arisen in Hellenistic and, and Semitic lands, and likely never succeeded in spreading beyond them in in a pure form. Uh, more specifically, in the West. Well, well, that that's that's meant to be just a little bit provocative. I mean, sure. I, I I prefer. I mean, I believe the Eastern. I think there are aspects of Western Christian theology that are clearly more or less accidents of both linguistic and cultural translation. Um, you know, like uh, certain understandings of grace and nature, the, the, the whole notion of uh, actual determinative predestination that you see in the, in the late Augustine, uh, understandings even of, of what the atonement is, uh, increasingly in Western, uh, Western Christian language, what the metaphors that, say, Paul uses that are drawn from civil law tend to be displaced more and more by metaphors from criminal law uh, over time, in fact, uh, and this certainly not at first, but many centuries later over time you have theories of atonement in which Christ's death on the cross is some kind of offering made to the Father that's absent from the from the early and the Eastern sources for, for whom it would have been a strange and inexplicable thing that the Father required the death of his son to, to appease his wrath. I mean, that sort of thing. But both East and West had some, you know, ultimately had uh, a notion of an eternal hell. I mean, that came, became the standard Christian narrative one way or the other. Uh, 
in both parts of the of, of the imperial world of the Christian imperial world. But as a matter of historical fact, the possibility of universalism and openness to it, a leaning that way, uh, always was more characteristic of the East, and especially in, in uh, um, well, Syriac-speaking Christianity. So, so what is your sense uh, throughout the course of your research as to why this this notion of universalism never quite made it out to the West? Well, well, I'm not sure it never quite made it because there are a few figures in Western tradition who arguably uh, were universalists before the modern period. But it's true that it's it's not until the more or less modern period. Um, I, I think because it was a minority tradition pretty well before uh, Christianity. It, uh, we, we know, I mean, there was a church in Rome from very early on. There was Western Christianity from very early on. But actually, uh, in some senses, it was not as sudden and complete uh, a religious revolution as it was in the East. And so by the time uh what we think of as fully formed Western theology has taken shape. And in a sense, some of the theological activity has passed from the Greek-speaking to the Latin-speaking world. That's already become the consensus. So I just don't think there was ever a period in Western Christian history that was quite as open about, about these issues. But it was definitely the case that, say, in 2nd century early 3rd century Alexandria or Antioch and places like that, there were, you know, it, it was it was not considered an outlandish position. There were simply plenty of figures who felt free to think in this way without feeling that they were challenging the word of Scripture or venturing into heterodoxy. Um, so, so talk about like so you you lay out in the book, and it, and I found this to be very interesting. Um, based on the the idea that some of the earlier Christians believed in more of a u- universalist uh, position, um, how then did they view the cross? Because obviously, it's a very different uh, perspective that they had than the prevalent one that in the in the West here. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if that's true. I mean, definitely between East and West, there was a, there came to be different understandings of what the cross meant in terms of how it accomplished salvation. That is, the Eastern narrative remained pretty much uh, like Paul's language, uh, you know, uh, very much a language of conquest, victory, you know. Uh, by death, God had entered into the kingdom of sin and death in which we were all held in bondage, had conquered it, had set creation free, and then when he ascended on high, he took many captives. You know, you know, the language is very much a language of triumph, cosmic conquest and redemption. It's an adventure story in some sense. The transaction, the transactional language he uses, like Litron, for instance, which is often translated as ransom, uh, really is just, just means the sort of price that had to be paid to set slaves free. They, when, uh, when slaves were manumitted, there had to be, there, there was a fee that one had to pay, uh, in order to achieve this. But it wasn't, there was no notion of the ransom being an offering to appease God's wrath. Well, that was true in the West for a long time, too. It's only later that the, the things like substitutionary models of atonement take shape. Uh, the question, though, it's, it's interesting because I, I get it's quite often asked, you know, if, if salvation is universal, what was the point of, of yeah, the cross? Yeah. Um, but, it, but wouldn't it be the same? I mean, would you say, ask exactly the same question? No matter how many are saved, whether it's just one person or everybody, uh, the cross would still be the way by which that salvation was, uh, was accomplished. Um, universalists still thought that there could not be salvation except through the overthrow of death and sin, through the conquest and restoration of of fallen cosmos, uh, the restoration of all things to God so that God should be all in all. It's the same story, it's just in, in the universalist version, God really wins. He doesn't just have a partial victory, and it's not just a partial 
a partial victory in a in a uh, in a story that otherwise is quite tragic. Yeah, let's let's get into because you lay out uh, at the beginning of the book some of your issues with with this idea of eternal conscious torment or this, you know, so, so what are some of the, I would love to hear you lay out some of the arguments against that, that idea. Well, for one, it's a barbaric and stupid idea. I mean, it, it's not, <laughs> it's not one you really actually have to argue against. It's self-evidently uh, uh, and profoundly depraved to believe that, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that any kind of, uh, justice or love, mercy, or goodness could be expressed in the perpetual torment of a rational being, or that a that a finite creature could earn uh, endless suffering. I mean, that that notion in itself doesn't even need to be argued against. We just have to make ourselves confront what we are, what we're saying when we say it. But uh, the, the argument in the book is a philosophical one about what damage that idea does to the possibility of any analogy in the language we use about God. For instance, I mean, it's one of the arguments. Uh, Christ tells his disciples to think of God uh, in terms of fatherhood. He tells them right away that they consider your own experience as fathers. If your child comes to you and asks for food, you don't give him a scorpion, you know, for instance. Um, so we are supposed to analogize to our understanding of God's love from our understanding of our own love for our children as fathers or mothers, presumably. Um, there comes a point, though, I mean, if, if, if the, what has come to be the standard narrative is true, in which we're talking about a father whose love is expressed in a willingness either to impose or to permit the eternal conscious suffering of his children, that the language we're using, the analogical predicates that we're, we're trying to use to make intelligible theological statements become internally so contradictory that, that it, it unleashes what I you know, call a contagion of equivocity. The words become meaningless. And if they become meaningless, we're not really saying anything. Uh, it, our theological language becomes utterly vacuous, and with it, so does our faith. Faith just becomes uh, blind submission to incoherent claims. Um, but you know, I mean, I I, I think that uh, that can be you know easily over you know, easily overlooked. There comes a point in the way we think about these things where we stop actually thinking about them. What we're doing is we're using words that have been so evacuated of any analogically continuous meaning when we use creaturely realities or divine realities that we are, in fact, saying nothing at all, and our faith becomes a kind of epistemological nihilism. Uh, that would be the first argument I would make with regard to it. Not, uh, not that we have to argue against the coherency of the concept. The concept is self-evidently repellent. It's that we have to argue against the coherency of any uh, theological language that pretends it can make sense of the concept in a way that doesn't uh, take words like justice, love, truth, mercy, goodness, and make them utterly meaningless. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about uh, about your book is that um, one of the things, again, that, that you know, Again, for lack of, the be of a better term, uh, progressive Christians get accused of is is avoiding portions of the text that they don't like, you know, and ignoring those and yeah. sort of cherry picking. But you go right at the text, which I which I appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, let, let's be honest. Um, you know, there's a lot of judgment language in Christ's uh, preaching, for instance, and if you put it in the context of its time, however, what you discover is that. You don't exactly know what the judgment language means, but you, you do definitely know that it's metaphorical, and that if you take all the metaphors completely, literally, they would contradict each other. I mean, you know, why the principal uh, imagery is of destruction and throwing things out, like getting rid of refuse. Um, the the language of the Gehenna, which is often translated as hell, we see that in the text immediately. What do we summon up in our mind? Images of human figures writhing in the flames and screaming and being 
you know, flayed alive by, or flayed <laughs> unalive by demons. Uh, but of course, the Gehenna really is. It's a good prophetic image. It's become an image of, well, became the image in, in rabbinic Judaism of many things, of punishment after death, quite often, though, a purgatorial punishment, not a, an absolute one, but also, in some cases, an image of destruction. And Jesus seems to use it that way in the sense that it's, you know, the veil of heaven, where things were thrown out or burned away or fed to worms. And the undying worms, I mean, that's just the Semitic idiom. It just means they keep feeding. It doesn't, it's not talking about eternal duration of worms and fire. It was talking about a valley, Hinnom's Vale, Hinnom's Valley, uh, where things were destroyed. The same is true of, of uh, ovens, you know. There we have that language of destruction. Then, elsewhere, we have language that's simply not getting to go to the party. You know, the wedding feast, like, we, we, it sounds very dramatic in our, in our rendering, smashing the teeth in the outer darkness. What, what, the, what the imagery is, is it, it's dark outside, everyone else is inside enjoying the party, and you're out there, um, you know, grinding, grinding your jaws in, in a sense of, of, of indignation, well, envy. But then there's also language of being sent to the prison, uh, to a prison and being tortured. And yet, those images come with, uh, you know, the, the promise that, that, that it's not permanent, or at least with the implication that it's not permanent. And you begin to realize that all of this eschatological imagery is not a literal account of anything in particular. It's, I mean, it's certainly not a literal account of a place of eternal conscious torment. That, that imagery we impose on it, it's, it's, it's imagery of being tossed out like rubbish into the fire, it's destroys, or it's imagery being left out of the party. It's imagery of having to pay the price in order to be reconciled. And you can't, you can't make a system out of that. But what is definitely absent is the picture of hell that we all imagine is there. On the other hand, language of universal redemption is used again and again and again in various places, and we treat that as hyperbole. We read right over it. So, you know, Paul in Romans 5.18 or 1 Corinthians 5.22 or, you know, uh, and I think I, in the book, I, my list, 40-odd verses like this, and they're pretty explicit claims. And in some cases, they seem to be part of a systematic statement of, of say, oh, I don't know, a whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, the cosmic vision that makes best sense when seen as a complete and total reconciliation of all creatures to God. So uh, I, I don't think that universalists can be, uh, if they're clever at least, can be accused of cherry-picking the text when you really have to cherry-pick to get around the universalist materials and uh, and make, make uh, the rest seem to be some sort of literal... Uh, and clear and unambiguous statement about an eternal hell. Lay me down, lay me weak, lay me weak. Lay me down, sweet, sweet. Lay me down, lay me weak, lay me weak. Lay me down, sweet, sweet. Yeah, talk a little bit about... I, I think you, you address this a little bit, and you address this certainly in the book. Um, the the issues uh, from from poor translations, uh, obviously, like you know, King James just kind of bulk translated a lot of different words in the original Hebrew and Greek into the word hell, and then also mm-hmm. the word that they take to mean uh, in, you know eternity or um, never ending, which really just means an age, a period of, or age of time. Or, or can mean or can mean eternal. That's the problem. You see, is that it's it's not a word that has a fixed, exact, conceptual uh, a range. Uh, aeonius, you know, obviously the adjective from aeon uh, is used in the Septuagint at times to mean a uh, very long time. Uh, you know, in one case, uh, it's certainly used to be just the length of a life. Um, in, technically, it, it doesn't. It doesn't uh, have to mean 
uh, and even when it means eternal, in what sense it means eternal is is, is uh, a matter of contention. Because of course, the very notion that um, uh, late antique Judaism had a, had a concept of just endless durative suffering rather than just indeterminate or uh, or I don't even know how you put it, just an indefinite period. Uh, is is problematic, but when you get to the New Testament, what does Aeonius mean? Well, uh, it, it it can mean. I think it does mean in the in the Gospel of John, in a sense, something with the quality of the divine reality. That is, uh, there there was this sort of ancient notion uh, that you find throughout late antiquity that goes back to earlier uh, Greek thought, and that remains. Part of the way people thought throughout the um, uh, Greek and Latin worlds, well, uh, into the early Middle Ages and beyond, that here below is the realm of Kronos, or, or or Tempus in Latin, which is which is a realm of generation and decay. Then above it, there above the moon, literally in the planetary spheres, is the realm of an eon, which is just the fullness of time complete without generation and decay, but not necessarily infinite duration. It's just uh, everything here that is partial and shadowy there is full and, and complete. And then beyond that, for, for there's uh, played in the form of forms or God or whatever. There's a sense that, it, that, uh, that Aeonius often just means the divine reality. But it also, in the New Testament, uh, in the synoptics, for instance, can be understood as a reference to the age to come and what occurs there, I think, because there's simply usages and associations uh, in the New Testament uh, that that fit this word into the general semantic economy of what, what is the language of the two ages. This age, the Olam HaHazeh, and in Hebrew, and the age to come, the Olam Haba. And the Apostle Paul's theology is all built around the transition from this age to the age to come, and how in this age everything is under the rule of archons and and, uh, mutinous angels and principalities and powers on high, and how death has dominion and, and... there are powers in the in the heavens and under the earth and on the earth that have to be overthrown, and that uh, this world is under the rule of the god of this age. You know, the, 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 this, but that in the age to come, everything will have been restored, put back into its proper uh, order by Christ's triumph, united to the Father. God will be all in all, and God Himself will be the direct reality of all things. And of course, in Romans 8, that means a fully transfigured cosmos. Uh, I tend to think that in the conceptual world of the New Testament, very much, that's what's going on when this word is used. But what does it have to do with this issue? Uh, only one verse, Matthew twenty-five forty-six, 46, uh, has a phrase that, that is, often translated, it's traditionally translated as eternal punishment. Now, even that could just mean annihilation. I mean, uh, but it could also just mean, you know, the punishment of the age to come, you know, which could be uh, any number of things, uh, including for someone like Gregory of Nyssa, or Origen, or Isaac of Nineveh, or Theodore of Lopswestia, or you know, Didymus the Blind, other uh, Universalist Fathers, it meant a, a sort of purgatorial um, purification of the soul, its restoration, uh, and, you know, in general, is salvation as if by fire, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So so in your estimation, what, what caused the spread of of this current notion of what, what hell and the afterlife might be like. It is it, it you mentioned Augustine in, in, in the book. Um, and obviously, you know, more well, famously no, I, Kelvin. I mean, I, I, 
Right. No, I don't. I don't say that he's responsible for that idea. He inherits it. Hmm. Uh, when I talk about the, the Augustine in the book, uh, you know, problems created by his his ignorance of Greek, I'm specifically talking about uh, things like his notions of nature and grace and predestination, which simply harden the picture. It is the case, though, that uh, I use Augustine as a counterpoint to Gregory of Nyssa as two different ways of reading Paul. And I believe that, you know, Augustine's reading of, say, Romans 9 to 11 is clearly wrong when you go back to the text itself. Um, but what I say in the book is that in Augustine, you have the profoundest, the most systematic picture, especially in the City of God of a vision of reality in which uh, there are two cities, so to speak, one far more populous than the other, which is destined to eternal suffering, from, in a sense, from before the foundation of the world, because God, as absolutely sovereign, predestining all things, had, in light of human sin, nonetheless willed the salvation of only a few, and that's the other city and that these two cities are sealed off from one another, both in the divine councils and in reality. Whereas for Gregory, there's a completely different story, that, uh, that, that it's uh, all of us are bound in disobedience, that God may show mercy on all. And the story is not of two cities sealed against one another throughout eternity, but the, way, but the various ways in which all of us ultimately come home to the one city, that is uh, our, our our true home from before the foundations of the world. And if you look at the way they read the scriptural evidence, it's Augustine who has to explain away a great deal of the language of the New Testament. It's not Gregory. Gregory actually makes perfect sense of all of the language of the New Testament. If you pick up his De Anima Resurrectionum, that is, on the soul and resurrection, which is written as a kind of a platonic dialogue in which his sister Macrina is the teacher and he's the student, which may very well have been the truth. I mean, Macrina was a, was a brilliant woman. She just didn't write. Um, his picture uh, of, of his, his interpretation of the scriptural evidence is pretty thorough, pretty complete. It makes really exquisitely clear sense of a lot of Paul's language, especially, again, in First Corinthians, whereas Augustine, though he has language on his side in places, as he can use certain images, um, actually his readings, uh, say again, say Romans nine to eleven, are the more conspicuously erroneous. But also, he's the one who is forced to come up with some remarkably unconvincing ways of explaining away certain statements like Romans 5.18, which just gives a, you know, a direct proportional equivalency between those who die in Adam and those who will live in Christ, or, or those, who, you know, those who were subjected to death uh, by, by sin and those who will be redeemed by Christ. Or again, 1 Corinthians 15.22, the same thing. He says that this can't be true, just as it can't be true when, when Timothy, that God really desires the salvation of all, or intends the salvation of all. So when he says, with regard to Romans 5.18 and 1 Corinthians 15.22, is that in the first case, and you find this this argument repeated later by Calvin and others, who are all good Augustinians, in the first case, when it's talking about all men, uh, it mean, it really does mean all human beings. Whereas in the, left, in the second half of the same sentence, using exactly the same words, it means only the small number of the elect. Well, as you can see, that's a forced and completely implausible way of explaining away the extravagance of Paul's, at their, their at least, seemingly universalist language. Gregory never has to do that. And to me, that's instructive.
and, and that leads to the what I think is the most interesting part of the debate, which is uh, why so many people cling to this this idea that a select few are in and the rest are out. And, and you address that topic in the book, and that's one that my dad and I for years have debated. And uh, my sense has always been that it, it comes down to a human sense of the idea or the concept of human justice. Like, it's not fair that that there are people who spend their lives, their human lives, uh, committing evil acts, and there's in the end there's no punishment they can you know, they, they can enter into the kingdom of heaven as well. Yeah, it, it's it's not fair that those who labor only for one hour get receive the same wages as those who've labored throughout the day. There are all sorts of things that are unfair. Yeah. But but at the same time, remember, none of these uh, universalists claim that there was no there were no consequences. They took that language of First Corinthians chapter three to mean that. Uh, you know, there are those whose works could withstand the fire of God's love and wrath or God's justice, and they would receive their reward. When when Paul then goes on to say, but, you know, uh, uh, others whose work is burned away will suffer loss, and then they'll be saved, but through the fire, but as by fire. Um Origin, Gregory of Nyssa, they saw this as a rather terrible fault. I mean, you know, you're living in the ancient world. They didn't have anesthesia. So yeah. <laughs> the imagery made sense to them. Would you rather be healed by having a, a healthy diet and, and, and taking some, uh, you know, tonics at night or be healed by cautery and surgery and, and all the terrible implements that physicians have to yield to wield in order to? Uh, save your life sometimes. Well, obviously the former. You'd rather not uh, be cauterized, or you'd rather not be the object of surgery. But I mean, so on the one hand, there is a comeuppance in the sense that that if you if you bind yourself to your own ego, if you refuse to love your neighbor, refuse to love God, if you create a God out of yourself, for yourself, then you're going to have to be detached from that slowly, painfully. You're going to have to be remade. And uh, that being, you know, that, that I would think that's a rather terrible process. I mean, we, we know, know it is even in this life when we uh, when we, we uh, have to give up on the illusions by which we live or repent of the things that we... we uh, most believed or most hoped in. But that said, uh, fairness isn't the issue, is it? Because the question isn't, uh, at least not as I read Paul and certainly Christ, it's not a game of chance. And it's, it's, it's also, uh, you know, uh, not a contest in, in the sense that some of us uh, have to lose so that others can win. Rather, it's a story of... of a world and and all creatures and rational creatures in a special way, having been subjected to a cruel master, death, and being saved, being rescued by whatever means necessary by the God whose love never relents. Um, and, and now, as for why people cling to the notion of eternal hell. I think there's no one answer, but I, I, you encounter people who will tell you why they cling to it, and sometimes convincingly so. And sometimes it's for innocent, perfectly innocent, perfectly understandable reasons, usually because they haven't thought about it. It's just that some you know, people who do bad things should come to a bad end. Uh, it's only if they make themselves think about the kind of bad end they're imagining infinite torment visited on a rational creature who in this life could never have had a perfect understanding and perfect control over his or her own will, for whom there is always some degree, not absolute, but some degree of of mitigation of their culpability, and who are finite in any event, certainly could contract an infinite guilt. Um, being subjected through, uh, you know, 
trillions upon trillions upon trillions of eons, and then at that point, the punishment hasn't even begun. I mean, it's it's an absurd notion of, of justice, no matter whom you're talking about. Uh, others believe it because they feel they must. Again, they don't think very much about it. Some believe it uh, out of kind of self-hatred. I've, I've encountered some who, who feel they, you know, they've had it dinned to quite successfully over the years that they're sinners feel they could never be pleasing to God. There is a small number, and I mentioned it uh, in the book, I mean, a small number. There are those I have met for whom it is good news who really want it to be true for just the reasons uh, you adverted to that. I mean, basically, it makes being among the elect a, a very special sort of distinction. Uh, and... Uh, you know, they they kind of look forward to the day when they get to be part of that small, uh, special elite that's on the inside of the gated community uh, rather than uh, on the outside. Happily, I don't think that's the majority. Uh, I mean, I think that you, you, you do meet people like that. I have met people like that. I've had to admit that there are people like that who really, really, truly love the idea of the eternal torment of the damned. But it's still my conviction that that's a vanishingly small minority. Yeah, you, you mentioned in the book also this idea um, that historically, and, and you'll have to um, you'll have to lay this out better than I'm trying attempting to paraphrase here. But uh, that at one point there were two versions of theology: a simpler version for those that couldn't, uh, or uh, yeah. actually three, if you follow the logic of the time. Yeah. Uh, but at least, but broadly too. No, I mean this this is an old uh, prejudice you find throughout the ancient world. Uh, it, today it seems very odd to us, but it was considered, uh, you know, <laughs> just obvious that, that that there were those capable of uh, only how can I put it the coarsest, the most uh, carnal understanding of the faith. And these are the people who would uh, not live an upright life unless they were terrified with pretty crude, literalist, mythological imagery of divine wrath and torture, you know. Uh, and they're even, you know, it's not just the Gnostics, if your listeners are familiar with it, not just the Gnostics who distinguished among uh, somatic psychical and pneumatic persons, that is, persons who are capable of only carnal understanding, persons capable of a somewhat more reflective, uh, soulish understanding that is, you know, bringing passions, emotions, moral intuitions, and then the very wise, the most educated and intelligent who are capable of understanding things in a truly spiritual or, or intellectual way. But it was definitely just taken for granted in the late antique world. And I think you see this uh, even in uh, certain Christian texts. I, I think I mentioned in the book there's a very famous sermon by the great Cappadocian father, Gregory of Nazianzus, talking about hell. And it's it's pretty much your standard hellfire and damnation uh, uh, sermon not quite Jonathan Edwards. I mean, you need reform tradition to be quite that morbid, but it, it's it's bracing. But then he pauses and says, uh, of course, there are those who, who uh, might prefer to reflect on this fired way that is more in keeping with the divine mercy, as if he's winking at his fellow spiritual, uh, his fellow intellectuals in the room. But then he goes back to, to what he was saying. And, you know, we know that he, like uh, his friend Basil and Basil's brother Gregory, and Basil and Gregory's sister Macrina, and all that, were all admirers of origin and you know, students of his work. And to me, it's, you know, it's not strange. It's not at all outlandish to think that Gregory of Nazianzus believed that for the common run of man and woman, uh, uh, the stick rather than the carrot was necessary to get them through this life, and it's better that they just 
to fear God and try their best to be good. And that uh, it's only for those who really live fully spiritual lives, properly educated, properly formed, capable of grasping the higher truth, that, that the fire of judgment is the refining fire of love. And uh, I don't know, maybe they do better than we do. I don't know. I mean, we're all modern. We try to be egalitarian about these things. I, I you know, So I, I will write a book that I expect anyone who wants to will read. Um, but I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they knew what they were talking about. Maybe only some people could get through life uh, without the aid of some kind of sobering possibility. Um, I, I did know a guy uh, once that was, uh, you know, just we, we had a conversation. He had had a pretty hard life uh, in, in the sense not only that things had gone badly for him, but that he had made them go badly for, for, for himself. Uh, and had a criminal past and he got out of prison and he said he really needed the fear. He needed the fear of hell in order to, in order to keep himself on the straight and narrow. Hmm. Yeah, that's 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 fascinating. So so talk about like there's this moment in the book where I love the way that um you articulate this idea of um you kind of explain how one might always move towards God and you use this uh this this way you describe it as like um uh a man dying of thirst in the desert who comes upon a fresh spring of water and yet still refuses to drink. Right. Well, that person isn't exhibiting freedom, really, right? He's exhibiting dementia. And uh, I think we understand that freedom to be real freedom involves being compassment, as you say. A person is insane, uh, douses himself in gasoline and sets himself on fire because he imagines that this is what he wants we would stop him, right? There's a free will. What has become um, popular in the, in the past century and a half is a way of justifying the, the language of eternal hell to ourselves uh, is the sort of thing. Well, you find it in C.S. Lewis, for instance, that the, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. God, God, God doesn't put us in hell. We keep freely rejecting God, and that rejection is what hell is. And it sounds beguiling because psychologically it's true to a point. Uh, I would caution those who use that language that stop talking about the gates of hell being sealed from the inside because I, I don't remember, uh, you know, as I understand that the gates of hell are shattered, I don't remember anyone being given the keys. But the thing to remember is that it's an incoherent picture of what freedom is. It's based more on the modern notion that freedom is simply willpower expressing itself spontaneously. But that's not actually how freedom works, is it? At least not the freedom of, of a creature capable of making choices. Uh, what, what, what is the case is that all of us move towards what, in some way or the other, we conceive of as being the good for us because we have a more original desire for the good, for joy, for beauty, for peace, for love. We can have a distorted view of it. Uh, we can pursue evil ends as if they're the good for us. But in doing so, whether, whether one wants to admit it or not, it is simply a logical truth that one is doing something that is large degree prompted by ignorance, uh, by uh, a, distor a sickness of the soul, a distorted sense of reality, to the degree that you know the good for what it is, to the degree that you know your own nature for what it is. I mean, this, this is just implied for Christians in the very doctrine of being created in the divine image. To that degree, your desire is for God. And not to know the way to God is not actually a path of freedom. It's precisely the bondage from which Christians believe God came to free them. The free will defense of hell essentially says that a loving father uh, would allow his child to, say, thrust her face into a fire uh, 
even if she does it because she stupidly doesn't realize how how it dis- how destructive it is because of his tender regard for her moral autonomy. Uh, we don't do that in this world, do we? I mean, if you would abandon your child to drug addiction or suicidal tendencies or, um, you know, uh, <laughs> or in extreme sports that involve bashing his head against a brick wall, you know, you just wouldn't do that. And I think it's because we have a very, very, you know, hazy notion of what free will is. I, I like to use a... <clears throat> do you... Uh, um, do you know the Franks? It's a classic American short story, Frank Stockton story, The Lady or the Tiger. Uh, yeah, it sounds very familiar. Well, to make, uh, <clears throat> to, to tell it in brief, it takes place in a kingdom where uh, a sort of semi civilized monarch uh, has created a system of justice by which, if you're accused of a crime, a serious crime, they put in an arena. And in the arena are two doors. One, if you open, on the other side, there's the most beautiful young girl currently unmarried and available in the village. And you're married to her. So it's always, the criminal is always a man in this story, which tends to be the case anyway. But, <laughs> However, if you choose the other door, there's a hungry tiger on the other side, which will tear you to pieces. And this is how justice is done. You're, you put in the arena and you make the choice. Now, you may not even be perfectly happy if is the one with the girl because you might be married already or you might love someone else the story says but nonetheless it's a better fate than getting eaten by a tiger right yeah now in the story the the, uh, the criminal whose tale is told is a criminal because he's a, he's a low level courtier who falls in love with the king's daughter she loves him uh, they have a romance he's not uh, of royal extraction not therefore a suitable husband so he's sentenced to the arena. Now, I, I, in the actual story, the princess, knows, she finds out which door is which, and she sets in a signal. And the, the story ends before he can open either door, because the question is, which signal does she send? That is, would she rather that he be, that she be, married, that he be married to another woman, or he'd rather, she'd rather allow him to be married to her rather than see him killed? It all depends on her. But put her story aside. Let's just talk about the man. If you're in that arena uh, and you you don't know what's on uh, which door is which, you have the limited freedom of being able to make a spontaneous and random choice between them, right? But let's say you actually do somehow know which door is which. Are you more free or less free than, than if you didn't? Hmm. Oh my gosh. Well, clearly more free. I mean, yeah. because you actually, because you can actually make a choice based on the end you desire and can freely bring it to pass. Now, for all I know, you might still choose the tiger because you're so forlorn that you might not be completely sane, but nonetheless, you're more free. But in the second, but of the two cases, uh, what are the chances that you're going to choose the door with the tiger. In the former case, the chance is, you know, 50-50. In the latter case, it's almost non-existent. Your choice has been made for you in some sense because you know. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free, you know. You will, the likelihood that you will choose one door than the other, rather than the other, is basically 100%. Everyone, in a sense, is predetermined by their real rational freedom to make the same choice. So, one of the, so you kind of use this language. Um, I would love to hear you expand on it a little bit. Where, so using the the tiger analogy, the the one that would still knowingly choose the door with the tiger behind it. Uh, almost suffers from a sort of uh, madness or illness, I think, as you put it. Um, so would it be fair yeah. to say that those not choosing God, thus choosing love in its truest and purest form, could be said uh, to be suffering from some sort of sickness or ignorance or some sort of restriction well, caused well, by... They, they, yeah. they'd, have, they'd have to be. In fact, yeah. it's not even open to debate. It's the only possible... Otherwise, there is no such thing as freedom at all. Freedom 
for a rational being can only mean this. The power to conceive of the end that will genuinely bring the greatest happiness to your nature. Your nature, being formed in the image of God, truly can find its bliss, its ultimate joy, only in, in, in union with God. To doubt that is already to be deceived about the nature of reality, and to that degree, your freedom has become more limited. Um, the, the, you know, we, we tend the modern world to embrace uh, what we call the pure libertarianism, in which free will consists of just the spontaneous power to choose anything. But if you think about that, if that's all it were, it would be the power to do something without rationale, just simply kind of to lurch in the direction of, a, of an end that's not desired for any reason, but just posited by the will as the end it's going to desire because it chooses to desire it. It's an incoherent notion psychologically, but also just logically. Um, it, it's not freedom because then any spontaneous reality would be no, no less free. I mean, a, a volcano would be a, a brain embolism. You know, anything that's simply purely spontaneous rather than having a teleological structure that is rather than being drawn on by to a rational terminus by a mind and a will that is seeking an end that it does not yet possess, but that it truly desires by nature. That and that alone would be a definition of freedom. If that's so, then the whole free will defense of hell makes no sense whatsoever. It's saying that God will allow you to remain trapped in ignorance, delusion, and, and pain, and leave you to your suffering, even though he knows and is capable of revealing the truth that would set you free and that would save you from your madness. Um, so, on the whole, I mean, I know it's the most popular defense of hell, of the idea of hell in, uh, in, in modern Christian thought. It's also the most incoherent. It's like saying that, you know, or put it much more simply in the book, I think I, I said, a fool might thrust his hand into the fire. Only a lunatic would keep it there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and I think it, you keep coming back uh, in the book, and I I, th- I thought this was uh, uh, a really interesting way to look at it, is is so much of our uh, hell is is contained here on earth and self imposed. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, I really do believe in hell. Mm. I believe we live in hell and heaven simultaneously in this life, and no doubt we'll continue to do so beyond this life um, to some degree. Uh, my favorite 20th century theologian, Sergei Bulgakov, spoke that way, you know. For him, heaven and hell exist in varying proportions in every single soul. Because, uh, you know, every soul is in via until such time as hell is perched in all of us. Uh, but until that happens, it's it's a very real thing. It's a very real experience for all of us. Oh, that's so good. So before we let you go, what what uh, what lasting impression uh, would you like to leave with folks based on this book? Like, what, what do you want them to take away from this? <sighs> that, um, you know, that, that uh, we don't actually honor God with a faith that obliges us to suppress our reason and our moral natures in order to embrace it, um, that love does not express itself in cruelty, and therefore we don't have to be afraid of expunging uh, cruelty from our understanding of divine love. Ah, love that. Um, so before we go, uh, where can people uh, keep on top of what you're up to, and uh, and where can people find this this book? Well, find the book wherever books are sold. Uh, it's uh, you know Amazon or whatever. Or go to 
Barnes and Noble, or you know, uh, for me, I, I don't. I don't keep a website. There are there's a promotional website uh, that's that's maintained for me. Um, but you know, I, I I'm afraid that one just has to check online to see what books have appeared in my name. I guess because they keep <laughs> perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate that uh, you spending the time with us tonight. This is a fascinating book, and uh, a really, uh, it was a pleasure to read and, and a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you very much. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm.